Well, thank you, Kristen, for leading that song for us. Um, it sets the, sets the stage for the sermon today, and, and thank you all for, for praying for me. I've had many hours in this passage, and even, even as, as late as Wednesday, I was unsure of, of which direction I was going to go. And uh, I'm very thankful for your prayers, and I, I really I feel at peace with it now. And, and I pray that, that it's um, in accordance with the will and Word of God, and that it, it's a blessing to you today. So open with me um, back to the Old Testament book of Micah. We're going to return here to our study, and we're going to look in uh, the beginning of chapter 5 today, looking at verses 1 through 5a. Micah 5, 1 through 5a. Before we read the text, though, I want to remind us of something. And that is, uh, one of the challenges in expounding Scripture is is to accurately understand uh, what's being said and to, to unveil all the details that are here in light of the big picture. Um, and in so doing, we keep the main thing the main thing. One of the, the difficulties is, and what is often tempting to do, is, is to bury the main point with all the details. But, but also, it can be uh, equally tempting at times to, to ignore the details, all the details that give depth, that give uh, life, that give uh, bright color to the main point, um, to the overarching message. And, and it's a challenge here to balance this. Well, because of man's insatiable appetite for information, for details, shall we say, um, it's prudent, therefore, to always approach the Word of God for what it is, the Word of God. The Word of God. And the divine author of Scripture, he tells his story. He tells it uh, in, by, with, through the lives of real people, of real events. Um, and this, this is not a, a fairy tale. It's not a, a made-up story. Uh, it's not wishful thinking. It isn't um, nostalgic record of how things were or how we would have liked for them to have been. No, it's, it's truth. It's God's truth. The words here that we have given to us in this book, both the Bible as a whole and also this, this very specific Old Testament book of prophecy in the book of Micah, they're words which accurately recall past events and people. And they also accurately foretold events and people before they existed to do several things, to serve multiple purposes. And and we could spend hours here just discussing all the different purposes and, and intents that God has in the writing of His story. But as there may be multiple secondary reasons, I think really there's only one primary reason. 
and that is to glorify God. Or as we have it in Micah's own words here in verse 4, He will be great. He shall be great. And after much debate, that's what I have officially titled today's sermon. He shall be great. However, if you prefer that, that we give this the unofficial title of Christmas in July, that's okay. For, for even as we find ourselves here in July of 2022, what we're reading about today is the incarnation of God. And, and what I think we have presented to us here in Micah chapter 5, frankly, is nothing short of the gospel here. What better gift was ever given? What exchange could ever be greater than Jesus Christ coming into the world, coming into a condemned world, to what? To take the place of condemned man, that whosoever will might receive the glory that's due to him. What greater exchange is there? What greater exchange is there than God becoming man, coming to a condemned world, to take the place of condemned man, receive man's rightful judgment, and give man Christ's rightful glory. Indeed, he shall be great. He shall be great. Well, let's read our passage for today. And we're going to begin actually in chapter 4, verse 11, and read through 5, 5a. And now, many nations have been assembled against you who say, Let her be polluted. And let our eyes gloat over Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord, and they do not understand His purpose. For He has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, daughter of Zion, for your horn I will make iron, and your hooves I will make bronze, that you may pulverize many peoples, that you may devote to the Lord their unjust gain and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops, They have laid siege against us. With a rod, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Well, let's pray. Almighty Father, as we open up Your Word this morning, as we approach um, holy ground in the, the, the very account which You have preserved for us of Your Word to the prophet Micah, to the country, the nation of Judah, which speaks even now today, Lord, help us to read, to understand, and to put it into our hearts, into our lives, uh, a glorious hope and of trust 
in uh, the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may you, may you bless us today through your word. And we ask in Christ. Amen. Well, chapter 5 really does, especially these first, first few verses, they, it really does flow out of chapter 4, verse 11 uh, and following. There is a natural progression of flow, a natural progression of thought that's presented here. And, and Micah's message, from the start, from, from even back months ago, we go back and look at, at 1-1. From the start, Micah's message has bounced between God's just condemnation for, for His nation, for Micah's nation, because of their sin, and God's promised future grace, and Israel's unmerited restoration. So there's a bouncing between these three things that's going on. And as chapter 5, chapter 5 completes the second of the three sections within the book of Micah. And as chapter 5 comes to the close here, it really exemplifies this book and this message. This bouncing back and forth between just condemnation, between future grace, and between Israel's restoration, unmerited restoration. There's words of guilt, uh, followed by words of forgiveness and hope. That's what we have here. Well, one thing to note in regards to this this bouncing back and forth, this changing of emphasis from one thing to another, is to, to recognize that in the Tanakh, the Hebrew Old Testament, and, and also in the uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, in both of these, verse 1 here of chapter 5 is considered verse 14 of chapter 4. So you say, well, that's, that's kind of irrelevant. And, and yeah, it is irrelevant insofar as chapter and verse divisions are man-made. They're extra revelatory. But the purpose that chapter and verse delineations uh, serve and what they, how they can be a benefit to us is that in, in several cases they, they serve for us to help to see the textual breaks of thought. Um, and and five one completes the thought that's presented, beginning in four eleven. Well, what is that thought? The thought is that Judah, the enemy's at hand. Judah, get in formation, fall in, muster yourselves in troops. This is a call to arms. This is their rallying cry. And frankly, this is what Israel's been looking for. This is the message that, that they've been waiting for. Yes, let's, let's fight them. Let's kick them out. Let's win. Let's have victory. This is, this is what they've been waiting for. Get in formation and let's go fight. Well, remember, for Judah, this is a very contemporary message. It's very contemporary. At this time, you know, Assyria, is, he, they're at the door. They're besieging some of the, the, the towns and the cities of Israel. And we can look at that in 1 Kings 18. We recognize that. But, but um, uh, why do I have that? Yeah, so in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 5, we see when the Assyrian invades our land, when he tramples our citadels, there again in, in 6, they will... Uh, the land of uh, Assyria, the land of Nimrod, 
he will deliver us from the Assyrian when he attacks our land. So, so 5.1 is, is very much now. It's very much present. It's very much contemporary to the hearers of Micah, to the, to the people of Judah. And in, so when we see that word now, again, it's a return to the now, a return to the present. Um, and, and yet you and I both know from the historical record and from the biblical record that it wasn't Assyria who fulfilled this promise of verse 1. It actually was Babylon. And let's, I want to turn for just a moment to 2 Kings 25. And you can either come or not. 25 verse 1, it says, Now in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall around it. And then jumping down to verses 6 and 7, Then they came, excuse me, then they captured the king and brought him to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and he passed sentence on him, that is, King Zedekiah. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him with bronze fetters and brought him to Babylon. So, even though this Micah 5.1 is written contemporarily with the assault of Assyria to the, uh, to the nation of uh, the northern tribes of, of Israel, and then also extending down into the tribe of Judah, the fulfillment of this verse didn't occur until what we read here in 2 Kings with Nebuchadnezzar. Well... Interestingly, this word muster here in 5.1 or, or gather, depending on how your translation uh, gives it, this word, it means not only to assemble like we would think of in regards to a military formation, but it also means to gash or to cut. And, and this gashing, this, this cutting is, is in the vein of the idolatrous practices of the nations around them. And if you think of probably the most uh, thing that comes first to mind is the prophets of Baal and Elijah. When they're dancing around this altar, calling on for Baal to, to, to call down fire, what do they do? They start cutting themselves. They start gashing themselves, letting the blood flow. It's a disgusting mess. Well, the, the law of God in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 14, it's, it says explicitly, Do not cut yourselves for the dead. And that's, that's what it's pointing to. It's an idolatrous practice. So, so that's, that's quite interesting here that, that Micah used this term muster, which has a connotation of both of those things. A gathering together to fight and an idolatrous practice. Well, why would he do that? Well, the, the word muster is the word gadad in Hebrew. Gadad. The word troops is gedud. So in true Micah fashion here, he's got a play on words. He, he mockingly calls Israel to a formation to fight. And, and, I, and I say that because considering both the verbiage 
here and the context of, of the, the last few verses of chapter 4, moving into the first few verses of chapter 5 of the book of Micah, considering that context, I am forced to believe that what Micah is thinking of here is that of his predecessor of Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. And, and I would say you should ensure that you have a cross-reference from this passage to that. Uh, 1 Kings twenty two twenty four. And if you look at these two passages, you're going to see many parallels, many similarities. Both passages, there's a reference to a horn of iron. Uh, Micah had spent all of chapter 3 here condemning, uh, denouncing the false prophets uh, and the, the, the irreligious, excuse me, actually very religious but ungodly rulers. Um, he, he'd spent all of chapter 3 condemning these individuals and contrasting the many false prophets with the very few or the, or the singularity nature of the true prophets of God. And that same thing is occurring between Micaiah and Ahab here. you got all these prophets of Baal ensuring Ahab a victory. Go up, go up, you're, you're going you're gonna to win. And, and Jehoshaphat, is there, is, is there not a prophet of the Lord here? Can we not inquire of a prophet of the Lord? And he says, oh, I hate this guy. Every time I call him, he prophesies something bad about me. But there's just one guy. The few nature of the prophets of God. So there's a, there's a comparison here between these two texts in that realm. Also, in both passages, there is the smiting on the cheek. In addition, in both cases, the prophecy precedes that of the, the defeat and the removal of an Israelite king. In the case of, of, of um, Micaiah, it's Ahab. And in the case here of Micah, it's going to be Zedekiah. Well, if you include the thoughts to which we will get in verses 3 and 4, both passages also have a reference to shepherding and of Israel's need or lack of a shepherd. So, for, that, for all of those reasons, I am convinced that this is what Micah has in his mind when he's pinning this, when he's writing the words of God. And we get an insight here into the mind of Micah. Some things that we see here, Micah was not attempting to be a lone ranger. Okay? While he was likely in the minority, perhaps he was even by himself in his region. We know he had contemporaries such as Isaiah and and I think Hosea. Um, He was in the minority. Well, Micah recognized the need for men to have mentors and for, those, for men to, have disciple, to be discipled by other men, by other leaders in the faith. And this import, it, it points us to the importance of having heroes in the faith. Have heroes in the faith. Um, if you're ever in a time, and, and if you haven't been, you will be in a time and a place where you either are or you feel like you're all alone. Or you're definitely in the minority. And, and you're serving God and, and nothing or no one else around you is. Here's the importance of having a hero in the faith right here. Um, all of us should have people we look up to. Even if they're dead people. 
And that's what Micah was doing. He was looking to his predecessor who had been dead for years. And he was calling on their courage. He was remembering their stand for the truth. And he was holding on to it and grasping it. Well, the responsibility goes two ways here. Find someone to disciple you. And find someone that you also can mentor and disciple. Someone who's coming along behind you. We get an insight into the mind of Micah here. He's not a lone ranger. Number two, Micah knew his Bible. Micah knew his nation's history. Micah knew his God and what his God had promised. Who his God was. This is the power and the precedence of using the historical Word of God contemporarily. Okay? That happened years prior to Micah. But he's taking that and he's applying it directly to his situation. And that's what we do. That's what we ought to do. This is what all the saints do in times of distress. They recall the acts of God. They recall the acts of God in previous generations, earlier in their own lives, in their parents' lives, in their siblings' lives. They remember what God has done. They consider the word spoken and the actions conducted in truth in the former generations. And they, they recall these things and they remind themselves and others of God's promises. Even, even if that is a promise of defeat and judgment. That's what Micaiah spoke. It was a message of defeat. It was a message of judgment. That's what Micah's presenting here. A message of defeat and a message of judgment. But, read your Bible and preach to yourself. Preach to yourself. Number three, Micah recognized here, like Al Mohler says, that theology is always in the headlines. Always. You don't have to look very far. Micah recognized truths regarding hemartiology. Chris brought that up on Wednesday night. He found truths regarding the doctrine of sin and its consequences. He saw and he heard Assyria deporting Israel and, and, and began besieging Judah as a result of their sin. See, it doesn't matter where we look. Truths about the sinfulness of man... Truths about the greatness and the justice of God, the consequences and the interplay between these two things, they're ever-present. They're everywhere we look. They're all around us, even in our morning newspaper, even on your, your news app on your phone. It's always there. Recognize that behind an, an ever-present and ever-visible physical conflict, behind those things, there is, in reality, an invisible, ongoing, spiritual conflict. They're not separated. Theology is always in the headlines. Well, now this message that the judge of Israel will be smitten on the cheek with a rod, that wasn't exactly the message that Judah was hoping to hear at the present. They liked the the call to get in formation and get ready to fight. They didn't so much 
enjoy this, this word that they were going to be smitten, that, that their king is going to be hit. Okay? Well, what is this referring? Well, rod. Okay? A rod is a reference to kingly authority, to power, to discipline. Think of Judah's scepter, Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from between his feet. Think the rod of iron of Psalm 2. Think the comforting rod and staff of Psalm 23. And also think of the proverb that says, He that spares the rod hates his own son. So it's a rod of authority. It's a rod of power. It's a a rod of discipline. In short, Babylon's power and their authority is going to overwhelm the power and authority of Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to discipline Zedekiah. Smite. What does that mean? What is that indicative of? Well, this word is used over 500 times in the Old Testament. This word smite. And often it is indicative of a death blow. Not always, but, but often. And in the places where death is not the result, it is usually in reference to a beating to such, to such an extent that permanent uh, physical damage or, or disability or scars remain. And in the immediate context, we have Zedekiah's capture and his violent blinding, of which we read in, in Kings chapter 25. Okay, well, what about this judge of Israel? Well, this is where it gets interesting. This verse told Micah's hearers of the extent of the enemy's push. Okay, they're going to smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is a siege and a capture of the nation's judiciary. The capture of a nation, it's not complete until their laws are arrested and they're exchanged with new laws. Why is that the case? Well, laws, laws reveal the past uh, moral beliefs of a country. They, la- they, they reveal the current climate of a country and their morality, what they believe, what they hold to. Um, and, law, and, and laws, legislation, it also is the, the setting in stone of a nation's current morality and beliefs and their ways of living. And, and I believe that we have seen some of this back and forth being played out in our own country in the last 30 days. This revealing of, of the law of God, or excuse me, the law of the country in relation to its morals, what it holds to be true, what it holds to be valuable. So we see that um, in our own time. Well, when a competing state conquers a territory, what do they do? They install a new king. You're defeated. Well, I get to choose who's in charge now. And it's going to be this guy, and he's going to serve simply as a puppet king. A vassal. He's going to perform to the will of the, the, the victor, the country that, that defeated uh, the one that's in place. 
And we see this, that that's exactly what occurs with Nebuchadnezzar. He defeated it, and he placed such and such on the throne. When that guy rebelled, he outed him and put a new guy on the throne. That's not all, though. While it's true that the, the defeat, the conquering of a country does touch the legislature, it does touch the laws, that's not all what this verse is talking about. Because, and we recognize that, that the fulfillment of this, and truly even, even inherently within the context, that the judge of Israel is not simply speaking of judges. It's speaking of the king of Israel. Um, they're intrinsically connected here. They're one and the same. Uh, Gerhardus Voss, who was a contemporary of uh, Benjamin Warfield, of uh, J. Gresham Machen, and even uh, Abraham Kuyper, uh, he was a, a professor at Princeton, and, and the, all, three, all those guys moved in that circle. So he was a contemporary uh, in the early 1900s of, of these fellows. Well, he says this, The king gives laws and executes laws. To judge and to reign are synonymous expressions. And, and I think that's accurate, because consider some other verses from the Scripture. 1 Samuel 8 says, Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. Give us a king to judge us. Amos 2 verse 3, I will also cut off the judge from her midst and slay all her princes. This is parallelism here. I'm going to cut off the judges and slay the princes. One and the same. Three, Deuteronomy 17. And this is um, as Moses is, is, is giving, re-giving the law and he's telling them in the future what's going to happen. This is regarding the establishing of a king for the nation. He says, Now it shall come about when he, that's the king, sits on his throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. Well, first of all, it would be spectacular if our political leaders would do that. But regardless, this is what God commanded, this is what Moses commanded, that when a king actually is installed, he is to write a copy of the law. He is to know this law in order to properly um, lead and, and execute it. And it's to be done accurately with the Levitical priests there. And then finally, Isaiah 33, it says even of God Himself, and this connection between law and king, judge and king, of God Himself it says, For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. So there's a connection here between judge and king. So here we are at the close of, of Micah 5.1 or, or the close of uh, what the Hebrew text would have in, in chapter 4, a prophecy of Judah's demise. Her king will fall. Her laws will be replaced. Her kingdom will be no more. It'll be over. Her God even will seemingly forsake her. And as an intended theocracy, ostensibly, her God will be no more. 
Even as Micaiah prophesied, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. Scattered. Scattered to Assyria. Scattered to Babylon. Scattered as refugees. Scattered to idols of wood and stone. Scattered to Baal and to Marduk. Scattered to Nebo, to Molech. Scattered. Scattered to syncretism. Scattered to poverty and apostasy. It's a very dark picture. But, and how wonderful it is that we can say, along with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, praise God for the buts in the Bible. Verse 2, but. Here in verse 2 of chapter 5, we encounter one of the greatest texts in all of the Scripture. We're taught incomprehensible truths here from this verse. Truths that ask the question such as, how can a kingdomless people have a king? How can a defeated nation have victory? How can a king be born in a nowhere town? How can eternity enter into time? How can God become man? Incomprehensible truths. We can't grasp these things, can we? We can't get our hands around them. This verse begins, but. However, despite, even though, yet, regardless, this simple word but, it does not deny the previously stated facts. It doesn't deny verse 1. It doesn't deny it. No, it's not the pitting of Scripture against itself as if they're contradictory statements. No. Despite all appearances, this is not a paradox. Try telling that to 7th century Judah. Try telling that to them. Try telling that to you, to yourself, when you're in a very difficult situation and you recognize it as A, but you read Scripture B. It's not a paradox. No, instead, this is a revealing of an equal or even perhaps greater truth. This is truth. This is truth. Yes, all the above statements are going to occur. All the above events are going to happen. All is the Word of God, and all is factual and unchangeable as He is. Well, even so, this word but is also the Word of God. And it holds equal veracity. It holds equal power. It holds equal immutability. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, that's a, that's a lovely um, beginning there. <clears throat> Jerusalem's going to fall. But as for you, Bethlehem, I haven't forgotten you. You got mighty Jerusalem here, the capital. It's going to be overrun. We, we've looked at that in previous texts. It's going to fall. But you, Bethlehem, you're so little. You're so tiny. You're defenseless. 
but I've got something special for you. But as for you, you know, if, if this capital city, the city that's probably going to be defended more than any other city within Judah, if it's going to fall, how much more so little Bethlehem? With a town with nothing, with no one, with, with a thousand, not even a thousand, maybe a thousand. Even if it does have a thousand, it doesn't reach the level of clanhood within the family, within the tribe of Judah. And that's how, <clears throat> that's how the tribes were delineated, by hundreds and by thousands. Leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of tens. You can, we can go and look at that. This was just a few families here. So it's quite remarkable that the God of heaven would, would give such honor and preference to a little no-place town. This place who's in the time of the patriarchs, its only claim to fame was that it was kind of close to where Rachel died and was buried. In the time of David, it got a little more honor. You know, for arguably David was Israel's greatest king. And he was born there, the, the Bethlehemite. Okay. But, no, this place, Ephrathah, is mentioned ten times in the Old Testament. And with the exception of it being used as someone's name, and all other times it's simply another name for the town of Bethlehem. So he's using the common name and the uncommon name. Bethlehem, Ephrathah. <clears throat> well, the reason, though, that... God honored Bethlehem with this mention here by saying, but as for you, I've got something special for you, Bethlehem. Isn't regarding Rachel, the wife of, the loved wife of Jacob, it's not because of David even. It's because of his son. It's because of the king who is coming. It's because of Jesus Christ. David only pictured this man. That's why Bethlehem has such honor here. Well, if it weren't for passages such as Matthew 2 and, and John seven forty two, I'm not so sure that I would easily catch on to the fact that this passage is teaching us about the birth place of Messiah. Perhaps these things are equivalent in the 7th century B.C. Jewish mind, Whereas for a 21st century Western mind, it's not. I think of it more as a hometown as I read it. But maybe you're reading it and you say, it's obvious to you. Maybe you say, Philip, the text says, go forth here. Isn't this some of the same terminology that we looked at last time in, in giving birth and, and childbirth and, and rearing of children, this going forth? Yes, but this go forth and this go out here in verse 2 it's actually not specifically referring to birth. It's more used in reference simply from the moving of, of a person or a thing from one place to another. And I've said this before, but, but we, not being able to recognize and draw out the meaning from this text, um, that it truly is indicating the birthplace of the Messiah... It tells us that we aren't as good as students of the Scripture as the unbelieving scribes were in Christ's day. Or maybe that's just me. Well, this 
Bethlehem, Ephrathah, is said to be little, too little to be among the thousands, too little to be among the clans of Judah. And as we said, this was simply how Judah, the tribes were delineated by, by numbers, by breakdowns. It's just, it makes sense how you would break down a tribe and have the main leader and sub-leaders below them. Well, in true God-like fashion here, the Lord so designated that His King, His Messiah, His Son, be born in a little town under foreign subjugation as opposed to being born in a populous city, in a sprawling metropolis within a world power. Additionally, He so chose to give the promise of the coming of His Son, of the coming of the, prom- of, of the Messiah, in a time when this little town was soon to face foreign invasion. So it's, it's quite like God to invert things, which we would think would be the other way around. But no, no. What does Scripture say? And here's another but. But God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things to shame those which are strong. Well, before leaving this, I want to make one connection between Christ's two comings. In His first coming, He came to a place that was unexpected. didn't make sense. Like, why would He come to Bethlehem? I mean, it's, it's similar to, you mean He's from Nazareth? What good comes out of Nazareth? I mean, it's that same type of thinking here. He came to a place that was not expected, to a place that didn't make sense, even though it had been accurately foretold. When his, at His second coming, He's going to come at a time that doesn't make sense to us, even though surrounding events have been accurately foretold. He says, the Son of Man comes at a time that, that you don't think. Therefore, be ready. Be ready. Well, it's noted here that Bethlehem is in the tribe of Judah. Yeah, and even though she doesn't rake among the who's who of the tribe, she's still included within the tribe. She's still counted on his roster. And being within the tribe of Judah is a big deal. It's a big deal. Don't you remember Genesis 49 and this promise of the scepter? The ruler is going to come forth from Judah. The scepter is not going to depart from between his feet. It's a big deal. <clears throat> and then we have that reminded to us in Chronicles in a genealogy where it says, Judah prevailed over his brothers and from him came the leader. Just a little nugget dropped in a genealogy here. I love genealogies. Well, so the scripture has for hundreds of years said that the Messiah comes through the line of Judah. So when Micah's audience hears these words, ruler, ruler, and we read the word ruler in conjunction with Judah, automatically some flags ought to go up. Our ears ought to tune in. Our eyes ought to focus. What's being said here? 
For if what we think is being said is actually being said here, then the message is that a king is coming. Yes, judgment's coming. Yes, war's coming. But a king is coming. What exactly does a king do? Well, if you ask the Israelites at the time of Samuel, they would have said, Our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's what a king does. Micah looks out and he sees the king coming. He sees him. He's coming to judge. He's coming to lead. And he's coming to fight. Well, tell us more about this king, Micah. You say he's coming from Judah, from from Bethlehem. What else? He shall come forth unto me, or he will go forth for me. Again, depending on how your translation renders it. The ruler is coming out of Bethlehem and going to God, or he is going forth from Bethlehem on behalf of God. Either way, there is a dual representative nature to this king. Either he is approaching the throne of God as coming from earth as a human representative or either he is coming to earth as a divine representative to man. And I say yes, both. Quite frankly, that's exactly what's being presented here the one with two natures is being spoken of. For the text says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And then also we have verse 3 that pictures Him being born a child. Divine descriptors, human descriptors, both are present. This human king is equated with God. This phrase, from days of eternity, from of old, from of everlasting, it can be summed up with the title that we've looked at again and again, we've looked at it on Wednesday night, that Daniel would use in another hundred years or so, Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days. The Son of Man. Christ's favorite title for Himself. The Son of Man. Well, this, this um, phrase here, from, from of old, from of everlasting, it's not just referring to that He's been prophesied about from of old, from everlasting, which that is true. Um, he's the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. So it's not just talking about that. No, it's talking that He has been working and moving and fighting from eternity past, from existing from eternity past. Hold your finger here in Micah and flip to Daniel chapter 7. Looking in in, um, verses 13 and 14... We're going to read in just a second. But this, this one, like a son of man, 
He deployed from the Ancient of Days and entered into time as a baby. And then He redeployed back to the Ancient of Days. And what does Daniel say? Um, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Micah here is declaring to a nation under siege, to Judah, whose king shall be conquered, that God's word shall not return void. That was in Isaiah 55, which a brother read portion of this morning. God's word is not going to be void. God's promises cannot and will not fail. Micah's declaring that despite man's unfaithfulness, despite Judah's, Israel's unfaithfulness, God is faithful. God is faithful. Even if all is lost, all is not lost. Though the kings of the earth, they take their stand and the rulers take counsel together, yet he who sits on the, in the heavens, he laughs. He laughs. And he says, look, I've installed my king. You can, you can fight and argue and bicker and come up with all the plans and scheme all you want, but I've installed my king. And about this king, he says, you are my king. Son, you're my son. You're going to break them with a rod of iron. Oh, that we all knew our scriptures like Micah knew his. For then, if we did, we wouldn't get tore all to pieces. We wouldn't get bent all out of shape when the kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Because we have an anchor. We have truth here, and it's in our brains. It's in our hearts. We know it. Jesus says, the truth shall set you free. The more we know the truth, the more free we're going to be, and not fretting, worried, and anxious. Jesus declares, thy word is truth. And the central theme... The the main point of the Word is Jesus Christ. He's the main point. And our lack of knowing and understanding the Scriptures, it affects our level of enslavement, but only in relation to the level that we know the main point. Only in relation to to the way and the level to which we know Jesus Christ Himself. For He says, I am the truth. I am the truth. And he said to the, uh, I forget the audience, but he said, you know, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me. 
So Micah, he knew his Bible, but he knew his God. He knew his God. And his God is faithful, and his God is true. Three, therefore. So moving on to verse three, we're presented with another transitional word, this word, therefore. And Kyle and DeLich, in their commentary, make this argument that uh, the reason the Messiah will come from Bethlehem is because the Scripture, quote, presupposes that the family of David, out of which it is to spring, will have lost the throne and have fallen into poverty, end quote. Now that very well may be true, but I think that there is a, is a greater point that's being made here. I think this verse has something greater in mind with this word, therefore. But in order for us to determine just what that greater thing is, we've got to discern who it is that God is giving up. We've got to discern um, until what time, who's in labor birthing a child, and who the remnant is. Now this was a, it was a very challenging passage for me to work my way through. Um, and, and there's been disagreements on this among expositors for centuries. Who's who and what's what. But here's my conclusion. Because Israel made a real mess of things, their king was disposed and deported, because God cannot and will not allow His word to be broken, which said David would always have a man on the throne, because the coming Jewish Messiah is to be king because this king is God incarnate. Therefore, God will give up the Jewish nation. There's many pronouns in this short section. And it can get confusing as to who the us's and the them's and the you's and the we's and the are. But I see the them here as referring to the Jews. Why? One they will be without a king, without a single unifying ruler to fully gather and to lead them. Israel is still conquered and divided. Though Judah was restored back, northern Israel never was. Two, Israel will be allowed to go their own way. You know, the verbiage, the thinking, the terminology of Romans 1 that was read, this giving up, this giving over, they will be allowed to go their own way. They're going to suffer the consequences of their sin. And, and God's going to remove a portion of His grace and, and allow false religion to take root even within their national identity for a period of time. Three, the remnant or the remainder of His brethren that it speaks of in verse 3 I do not believe can be referring to the Gentiles as they never were a part of the children of Israel. They're always separatists, Jews and Gentiles. How can you return if you never were? It's only in Christ that the Gentiles are grafted into the family. So when verse 3 speaks of them returning, I believe that's what Paul is referencing in Romans 11 that it's the Jews as a whole coming out of their unbelief and being converted. 
being regrafted into the family, into the tree, into the root. Now, this is a, an in, excuse me, it's not an indefinite or permanent giving up because it has the words until the time. Stop right there for a minute. Think about those words. Until the time. Those hold such hope. Do they not? If it were to be said of you that God had given up on you, what a weight of woe that would be. What sorrow. But praise God, that's not how the sentence ends. Until the time. These are words of grace here. Not of merit, but of grace. These are words of patience. What does he say? Not the, the Patience. 2 Peter 3, 9. Um, uh, he's patient with them, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Until the time. Words of grace. And these are important words, even for those who are believers, for certainly there are periods in our, in our life where it seems as if God may be, have forsaken us. Perhaps He's given up on us. He's forgotten us. He's forsaken us. Now, if we're in sin, rightfully so. Rightfully so. It's a word of rebuke. Or it could just simply be that we're in a period of, of maturation, a period of growth, like a, like a child in the womb. But they're words of grace until the time. Well, when is this time? When will the time come to an end? When will God stop giving them up? And I think there's a twofold answer here. And I think that twofold answer is paralleled for us in, in Revelation 12 when it speaks of the woman giving birth. Um, now, the first is in reference to Mary and the Immaculate Conception here and the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, the second, I feel, is the, what we talked about in detail last time, this conversion of the Jews, Israel's spiritual rebirth here. I think that's what she who is in labor is referencing. The birthing of the Christ that is the dividing marker in history between B.C. and B, between A.D. And I think it's, it's the, 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 the nation as the woman birthing, being born again. I think those two things are being pointed out. Now verse 4, and, and. This brings us to where the king will arise and shepherd. Or as the King James says, stand and feed. Not feed himself, but feed his flock. Feed his flock. He's shepherding them. And there's no difference in, the, in, in between this meaning here and this terminology because the point is the holiness of the king and the greatness of his work. He does what no other king can do or did. What does he do? He stands against all opposition. He will arise. He will arise. He stands against all opposition. He arises against every threat. He does not allow His flock to be malnourished, but He leads them beside the quiet waters. He leads them into green pastures. He, he guards 
himself. He himself guards and protects his flock. He lies down in the sheepfold and does not allow the wolf to enter or to carry off any of his own. This king, he stands with and in the strength of the Lord. When reviled, he didn't revile back. That takes the strength of God to not lash out with animosity and anger when reviled. He didn't revile back. When blasphemed, he uttered no threat. Can you imagine blaspheming God and not being immediately struck dead? Well, that's what happened. He stood in the strength of the Lord and uttered no threat. When tempted with unbearable temptation, he stood solid. He bore it. He bore up under this temptation where we fall for it, where we eat the fruit. He stands in the strength of the Lord. His actions are magnificent. His speech is mesmerizing. No other man taught as this man. He is love personified here. He bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. He never fails. He stands with Moses and he talks with Elijah and he's transfigured in glory above them both. He's majestic to the uttermost. His vesture was white like the snow and hair like, of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels like a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing out and coming out before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. God highly exalted him bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that what at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of the person and the work of this King, and only because of the person and the work of this King, shall any be transferred into this kingdom. And only through this man and his work shall those who have been brought into the kingdom remain in the kingdom. They will return to the sons of Israel and they will remain. Why? Because he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. The message of Micah chapter 5 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 1, Christ is smitten and Christ as judge. Verse 2, Christ as king, Christ as God. Verse 3, Christ as man, Christ as redeemer. Verse 4, Christ as resurrected, Christ as shepherd, Christ as sustainer. Christ as sovereign. Verse 5. Christ as prince of peace. And if we cheat and go down to verse 6, Christ as deliverer. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. You think He's great now? Well, He is. But we've seen nothing yet. A king is coming And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. 
and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in white linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Behold, a great king is coming. Is he your peace? Is he your peace? I'll leave you with that, and may the Lord bless you.